Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to CBS News Roundup ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This is the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Coming up, combat between Israel and Hamas resumes Friday, a day after more hostages were freed. The resumption of hostilities in Gaza is catastrophic. A global climate summit begins in oil-rich Dubai. We will see emissions come to a peak this year. In the Kaleidoscope with Allison Keyes segment, a look back at the life of a pivotal black gay civil rights leader. Look at what this man did with his life. He started at the age of 15 as an activist. I'm Allison Keyes in Washington. On Friday, Gaza was once again engulfed in the roar of Israeli warplanes, the wail of Hamas rockets, and the sounds of gunfire as hostilities resumed between Israel and Hamas after a seven-day ceasefire. People took to the roads with their belongings as Doctors Without Borders issued a statement warning that nowhere in Gaza is safe due to indiscriminate bombing and continued fighting. CBS's Robert Berger joins us from Jerusalem. The ceasefire broke down after Hamas failed to produce a list of hostages, 10 hostages that it would release. And that was the that was the terms of the deal. Basically, that 10 hostages released each day in exchange for an additional day of ceasefire. Uh, Hamas says it's out of women and children to release. Interestingly, though, I've, I've been seeing reports that well, Israel accused Hamas of refusing to release all the women it held, and a Palestinian official says the breakdown is over female Israeli Israeli soldiers. Right. Apparently, uh, the women that are being held, at least according to Hamas and Palestinian officials, are female soldiers, and that's what makes it a lot more complicated. Under the seven-day truce, Women and children were released. But now if there are women soldiers being held, Hamas wants a much higher price for their release. So tell me what it's like now that the fighting has restarted. And I understand a lot of the bombing is in southern Gaza, where people were told to flee in the first place. Right. Israel has been dropping leaflets on southern Gaza, where most of the Palestinian population had moved because the fighting was in northern Gaza. But now Israel is targeting a city called Khan Yunus, where Hamas leaders and fighters are believed to be hiding out in tunnels underground. So that appears to be the next target of the Israeli military. But there are a lot of Palestinian civilians there. I'm wondering if you've had a chance to talk to anybody on the street, how are people in Israel feeling about this, the, the resumption of the fighting? Well, obviously, people would like to see more hostages released. But at the same time, there are two goals stated by the government, and I think the public supports. One is getting the hostages out. 
and the other is destroying Hamas. So if Hamas isn't willing to release the hostages, then I think there is support in the public for further military action. Basically, after what happened on October 7th, when 1,200 people were massacred in the most brutal ways, uh the Israeli public wants to see Hamas destroyed and no longer posing a threat uh, on the Gaza border. And uh UN is saying about more than 15,000 people in Gaza have been confirmed killed as well. So the that's the problem for Israel, that Gaza is probably the most densely populated place on Earth, at least one of them. So you have all these civilians and they're caught in the fire and the casualty tolls are very high. But as far as the view from the Israeli public is that Hamas started this war and that they're to blame for the collateral damage over there. CBS is Robert Berger. This is protest and worse continue to whirl the streets in the U.S. One of the three Palestinian students shot last week while taking an evening walk spoke with CBS's Errol Barnett. I was speaking kind of like Arabish, so a mix of Arabic and English. He, without hesitation, just went down the stairs, pulled out a firearm, a pistol, and started shooting. Kinan Abdul Hamid says he ran for his life, fearing his childhood friends might be dead. First shot went, uh, I believe, in Tahsin's chest. And I heard the thud on the ground and him start screaming. And while I was running, I heard the second pistol shot hit Hisham and I heard his thud on the ground. What else is going through your mind at that moment? Honestly, it was so surreal that I couldn't really think. It was kind of like a fight or flight. I didn't know I was shot till a minute later. And I felt this extreme spike of pain. So I put my hand where the pain was. And then I uh, looked at it and it was soaked in blood. I was like, holy I was shot. The 20-year-old student managed to knock on a neighbor's door who called 911. Then relying on his EMT training and knowing he needed help fast, Abdal Hamid asked police to rush him to the hospital. Once there, he asked... I was like, are my friends alive? Like, are they alive? And then they were able to ask and they told me and that's when I was really a lot more relieved and uh and a lot better mental state. Abdul Hamid's mother, Tamara Tamimi, traveled from Jerusalem to Vermont after the shooting. And honestly, honestly, till, till now, feel like there's nowhere safe for Palestinians. I, like, I don't, if he can't be safe here, where on earth are we supposed to put him? Where are we supposed to be? Like, how am I supposed to protect him? A Thursday afternoon, Mr. Abdul Hamid and his mother visited the other two victims still recovering in the ICU, one of whom has a spinal injury. And that's just a few blocks away from where I'm standing. This is where the shooting took place in front of the suspect's home. That man pleading not guilty to three counts of attempted murder. Errol Barnett, CBS News, Burlington, Vermont. Since this latest conflict erupted on October 7th with the Hamas terror attack on Israel, there has been a rise in anti-Semitic and anti-Arab incidents across the nation on campuses. The list of schools under investigation over alleged incidents of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia is growing. Among the colleges under the federal microscope for potential discrimination, Harvard University, the University of California, Los Angeles, University of Southern California, Tampa, Columbia University, and Cooper Union. Also being probed, school districts in Florida and Nevada. And now the 
New York City's Department of Education is on the list. The investigations all center on potential violations of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act, which protects students from discrimination based on race, color, or national origin. Meanwhile, on Capitol Hill next week, there will be a congressional hearing on anti-Semitism. The presidents of Harvard, MIT, and the University of Pennsylvania are all expected to testify. Stacey Lynn, CBS News. On this World AIDS Day, the CDC raises awareness about the barriers black women face. After starting a relationship with a partner living with HIV, Britt Williams wanted to keep herself safe. One of my go-to phrases is don't let HIV get in the way of love. She thought the HIV prevention medication PrEP or pre-exposure prophylaxis was not for women. She learned she could be taking it. I continue to use PrEP because it's one less thing I have to worry about as someone who's actively dating. Williams now wants other black women to know they too can protect themselves. Do you ever wonder where all your money went? Like every single time you look at your bank account? Honestly, it's probably all those subscriptions. I felt that way too until I got Rocket Money. Rocket Money helped me see all the subscriptions I'm paying for, and it was eye-opening. Between streaming services, fitness apps, delivery services, it all adds up so quickly. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. PrEP is 99% effective at preventing HIV. CBS's Donya Backus. Coming up, another crisis for seniors. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. Friday morning, the Supreme Court announced that retired Associate Justice Sandra Day O'Connor died in Phoenix. She was 93 years old and had suffered a long illness. O'Connor was the first female justice to serve on the nation's highest court. I will do my best to serve the court. President Ronald Reagan put a crack in the glass ceiling when he chose Sandra Day O'Connor to serve on the nation's highest court. I will send to the Senate... The nomination of Judge Sandra Day O'Connor of Arizona Court of Appeals for confirmation as an Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court. The U.S. Senate unanimously confirmed her. It's all right to be the first to do something, but I didn't want to be the last woman on the Supreme Court. (laughs) Thank goodness for that. (laughs) She served for 24 years, paving the way for other female justices, four currently serving on the court. Born in El Paso, Texas during the Great Depression, O'Connor grew up on an Arizona cattle ranch. She graduated from Stanford with degrees in economics and law. She briefly dated William Rehnquist, who would eventually become Chief Justice of the United States before marrying John J. O'Connor III. When no law firm would hire her because she was a woman, O'Connor turned to public service. After raising a family, she got into politics and caught the eye of the White House. She is truly a person for all seasons, possessing those unique qualities of temperament, fairness, intellectual capacity, and devotion to the public good, which have characterized the 101 brethren who have preceded her. 
A moderate conservative who personally opposed abortion, O'Connor's key swing votes preserved Roe v. Wade. She successfully fought breast cancer in 1988. It was her husband's declining health that led to her resignation from the court in 2006. After stepping down, she devoted her life to teaching young people how government works. Most of our native-born Americans can't answer all the questions that we require of people from other countries who are becoming citizens. And her legal career wasn't over. Sandra Day O'Connor continued hearing cases on a part-time basis as a visiting judge. Weijia Jang, CBS News, Washington. The World Health Organization says the pace of population aging is much faster than in the past. Now a new study says the U.S. is not prepared to house or care for the increasing ranks of the elderly. CBS's Steve Kathan explains. The Harvard report says without increased government assistance, many older adults will have to forego care or rely on family and friends for help, and homeless numbers could spike. Over the next 10 years, the population over the age of 75 is forecast to increase by 45 percent, growing from 17 million to nearly 25 million. And many of those people are expected to struggle financially. Steve Kathan, CBS News. New research finds that your kids could have permanent consequences from all that excessive noise. The world is a loud place. We are constantly exposed to excessive noise levels. Some of it is unavoidable. Others, not so much. Most parents have given in at some point to those devices. It's hard to get these things away from them. My daughter has earbuds in her ears at all times, unless she's lost them. Experts say those earbuds are usually too loud. A new study from the American Academy of Pediatrics shows that many kids are exposed to potentially harmful noise from infancy, and the effects can last a lifetime. Once hearing is lost, that is generally permanent. Dr. Sophie Balk is a pediatrician at the Children's Hospital at Montefiore and the lead author of the new study on noise. It could be immediately after like a loud blast, um, like an explosion, but more likely it's due to repeated exposures over time to less loud noises, but noises that are still too loud. Like those headphones. The study also noted concerns about infants' exposure to sleep machines or sound machines. If you are going to use a sleep machine, set it at the lowest volume possible uh, for the shortest time possible and set it as far away from the baby as possible. In addition to turning down the volume, experts say it's a good idea for kids and teens to take listening breaks and use earbuds with caution. Nick Calloway, CBS News, Montclair, New Jersey. On Friday, the U.S. House formally said bye-bye to embattled New York Republican Representative George Santos, who has been accused of using campaign donations on everything from personal spending to fancy clothes. He has been indicted, but has continued to deny any criminal wrongdoing. George Santos has become the sixth member of Congress ever to be expelled by his own colleagues. The clerk will notify the governor of the state of New York of the action of the House. The vote came after the House Ethics Committee found that the New York Republican deceived donors and used campaign funds to buy Botox, designer clothing, and take trips to the Hamptons in Atlantic City. Read the report. Uh, It's a 50-plus page report, which I believe is very damning and really sets forth uh, the evidentiary basis for why expulsion is proper. 
Some Republicans pushed back against Santos's expulsion, saying the courts or the people of New York should decide whether Santos continues to serve. I'd vote for to expel if he was found guilty in a court of law, but that has not occurred yet. We are a political body. We are not a judicial body. But his fellow Republican lawmakers from New York spearheaded the push to have him expelled. Obviously, broken the law, uh, defrauded taxpayers, voters, and uh, uh, and donors. Santos left the House floor even before the vote was finished, and he made no comment as he left the Capitol. Nicole Skanga, CBS News, Capitol Hill. Now to Texas, where a seven-year-old is making quite a name for himself in a way that may surprise you. KOSATV's Tyler Poglich. For most seven-year-olds who are competing in sports, they're either playing football, soccer, basketball, or baseball. But Kyler Herrera is no ordinary seven-year-old. He's competing in bull riding and competing at a high level. Kyler has been riding bulls for the last three years, and over that time has racked up some hardware from all across the country. Las Vegas, uh, and Cactus, and uh, Cowtown. In Texas, Kyler Herrera is ranked in the top five for ages eight and under in bull riding and has no plans of slowing down anytime soon. Just do what I do. And what Kyler does is win. Since starting bull riding, Kyler has won several competitions and has earned new buckles and spurs. For Kyler's dad, it's amazing to see his son grow in the sport. Um, he just he just has the heart for it. You know, we see a lot of kids coming in and out of the sport. Very few um, has what it takes to continue as they grow into the bigger, older, uh, wilder bulls. You know. And uh, he just continues to just want it more and more. So watch him progress from size to different bulls and from uh, calves and all that. You know, it's just just a great experience and uh, hope to continue to see him going with it. Coming up, the urgency of climate change. We can't be building new fossil fuel infrastructure. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. In Dubai, the U.N. climate talks are underway with some 70,000 leaders from around the world. But the heads of two of the globe's biggest carbon-polluting nations, Presidents Biden and Xi, stayed home. Still nearly 200 nations have already agreed to launch a fund to support countries hurt by climate change. U.N. Secretary Antonio Guterres is urging those at the COP28 summit to plan for a future without fossil fuels. CBS's Pamela Falk with more. Guterres just returned from Antarctica, where he was talking climate. It is not too late. So if there is political will, we are perfectly on time to avoid any catastrophe in Antarctica and around the world. But that said, without changes by the world's largest greenhouse gas emitters, the world will experience the wildfires, flooding, extreme storms, and polar bears will be a species of the past. The U.N. Environment Program's Executive Director, Inger Anderson, spoke about the 2023 Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change report that says we are headed in the wrong direction. Our collective failure to cut greenhouse gas emissions leaves us on track to exceed 1.5 degrees Celsius of global warming. Opening the U.N. climate conference in Dubai, the new president, Sultan al-Jabir, who is a controversial figure because of his role in the Emirates oil giant, said that this conference of parties must be ambitious. We must ensure that this COP delivers 
the most ambitious global stock take possible. Guterres said that what is needed is tripling the renewables, doubling energy efficiency, and phasing out fossil fuels. The United Arab Emirates is looking for a big success at their climate meeting by forging a deal on climate funding, knowing that emissions and adaptation are much more difficult to find consensus. 2023 is expected to be the planet's warmest year on record, and countries have been slow to cut their greenhouse gas emissions as the world did fail to reach the goals they set in the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement. The UN warned that if nothing changes, warming could reach 3 degrees Celsius above the pre-industrial average by the end of the century. Pamela Fox, CBS News, United Nations. This as the U.S. breaks records in oil and gas production. Senior national and environmental correspondent Ben Tracy reports President Biden's climate response is complicated. In Colorado Wednesday, President Biden visited the largest manufacturer of wind towers in the world. What's your name? Eddie. Eddie, I'm Joe. Good to see you. Touting record levels of federal funding for clean energy projects across the country. Building a clean energy future made in America. But he didn't mention that the U.S. is also producing record amounts of crude oil. Planet warming emissions from fossil fuels are the main driver of climate change. 2023 is expected to be the planet's hottest year on record. Drill, baby, drill. Compared to former President Trump, Mr. Biden actually approved more permits for oil and gas drilling on public lands in his first two years in office. And the U.S. is now the largest oil and gas producer in the world. We can't be building new fossil fuel infrastructure. Michael Mann is a climate scientist and author of Our Fragile Moment. We will see emissions come to a peak this year. They will no longer climb as they have in the past. The bad news is reaching a plateau isn't good enough. Those emissions have to come down to zero and they have to do that pretty quickly. And so those emissions are not going to go down like that if we continue to burn fossil fuels. That's right. We need to literally bring carbon emissions down to zero in a matter of decades. Phasing out fossil fuels is a heated debate at the UN climate summit in Dubai. Many climate activists fear the process has been compromised by being held in the oil-rich UAE and presided over by the head of its state-owned oil company. It looks bad, it it smells bad, and it's probably bad. But he hopes world leaders will rise to the occasion and cut planet warming emissions before it's too late. Ben Tracy, CBS News. In our Eye on America, we hear from environmentalists in Alaska that the bald eagle population is under threat due to a plan for a new copper mine in the panhandle. Every November, an American icon returns to Alaska's Chilkat River to roost. It's akin to being on the Serengeti and watching the, the migration of the wildebeest. The town of Haines is the gateway to the largest bald eagle habitat in the U.S. This wildlife preserve, a migratory mecca. This is the greatest concentration of bald eagles anywhere on the planet. At times, we've counted up to 4,000 individuals. It's a phenomenon photographer Mario Benassi says is made possible by geothermal springs, which prevent the river from freezing, leaving the salmon that run through it ripe for picking. But upstream, there's a potential new threat. It could be the end of this singularity and this gathering. The state recently permitted a mining company to explore extracting copper. It's a move the governor says will create jobs. But environmentalists are sounding the alarm. 
Clean water advocate and Haines resident Gershon Cohen is most concerned that there might be toxic runoff damaging the Chilkat. According to the EPA, mining has contributed to the contamination of 40% of the country's rivers. If the mine were to happen, anything would happen to the salmon, basically everything else collapses. Including, Cohen says, the eagle's habitat. In an email to CBS News, American Pacific Mining, the company leading the project, said it's committed to operating responsibly and respecting protected areas and species, including the bald eagles. Most native Alaskans, who also depend on salmon, are not sold. On a good day years ago, how many salmon would you expect to get? in just one of these trips with the net. So probably 20 to 30 fish is, is what what you could probably do. Hank and Kim Strong's empty net highlights what studies show. Climate change is already taking a toll on the fish population. Why take that risk? Do you gamble? I don't go to Las Vegas to gamble. I don't, I don't want to gamble here either. For Eye on America, Jonathan Vigliotti, Haynes, Alaska. Henry Kissinger, the controversial Nobel Prize winner, whose service under two presidents left an indelible mark on U.S. foreign policy, died Wednesday at the age of 100. Richard Nixon discouraged Secretary of State Henry Kissinger from holding press conferences. The 37th president thought Kissinger's thick German accent wouldn't play well in Peoria. So why did the diplomat who moved to the U.S. as a teenager never lose his accent? Well, my brother has, and he says it's because he's the Kissinger who listens. Kissinger's Jewish family fled Nazi Germany in 1938, and some said this shaped his worldview. But Kissinger told CBS News, no way. I don't think it's as simple as that I saw a disintegration of order, then I go around the world, and all I want is order, never mind what it does to human beings. That just isn't true. Monica Ricks, CBS News. Coming up in the Kaleidoscope with Allison Keyes segment, looking back at the legacy of a gay black civil rights leader. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Welcome to the Kaleidoscope with Allison Keyes segment, where every week we discuss issues including race. There's a new Netflix film out about Bayard Rustin, the openly gay black civil rights leader likely best known for putting together the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. He passionately supported the black community and had a close connection with Jews as well. Filmmaker Nancy Cates didn't work on the new movie, but she thinks her 2003 documentary, Brother Outsider, The Life of Bayard Rustin, did much to bring his advocacy to a wider audience. Cates is Jewish and a member of the LGBTQ community and has been thinking about his legacy. We began by asking how she became interested in Rustin. I became interested in him in 1997 when I read a review of Jervis Anderson's book, Troubles I've Seen. Jervis Anderson was a staff reporter at The New Yorker. And um, I had vaguely heard of Rustin, but I read this review in The New York Times and I thought, look at what this man did with his life. 
He started at the age of 15 as an activist and he continued doing activism until the day he died, you know? So for 60 years, he worked for social change. And I thought, what are the rest of us doing with our lives? Like we're a bunch of putzes by comparison. If you excuse my Yiddish, you know? <laughs> um, and I, I just thought we need to know about this guy. And I called the Bennett singer who had worked on Eyes on the Prize, the landmark TV series. And I said, what do you think about a film about Rustin? He said, I've been thinking about it t- since Eyes on the Prize stopped. And I'm, of course, thinking, why didn't he do something already? <laughs> but that's how it got started. I just was really inspired by him. And I thought that very few people, very few Americans have that sustained commitment to social justice over so many decades. Let me jump in here, Nancy, and ask you a question, because I know people, well, some people know about his basically orchestrating the 1963 March on Washington, but he was involved in way more things. Talk to me about some of the other things that he dealt with. Well, when he was 15, as I was mentioning, he um, protested the local, um, there were restaurants and a movie theater in Westchester, Pennsylvania, where he grew up, which is 30 miles from Philadelphia, that were segregated in the 1920s and 30s. And so he did this one person protest of this restaurant and he got arrested and then he got people to bail him out. Um, so he understood the power of working collectively at the age of 15 <laughs> And then he went on, he went to various colleges. <laughs> he was thrown out of one college for protesting the dining halls because they had such terrible food. I mean, he was a, just a natural organizer and a natural activist and strategist. Um, he began to work with something called the Fellowship of Reconciliation in the 1940s, maybe the 30s, I guess the early 40s. He also worked with the labor organizer, A. Philip Randolph, who was famous for organizing the uh, Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, which was this incredibly important black union um, that really changed the face of American labor. Um, He and Rustin helped desegregate the United States military in 1948. Um, Randolph had the idea of marching on Washington in the 40s, which Rustin kind of revived in the 1960s because there wasn't a march in the 40s. So this visionary openly gay black man in a in a community that wasn't and still doesn't necessarily uh shall we say support the lgbtq community what would the modern civil rights movement have been without his influence well eleanor holmes norton who's been in congress for decades you know representing the district of columbia you know says in our film that she doesn't think that it would have achieved what it had achieved without byron russin and so does Rachel Horowitz, who was his assistant for years. King was a brilliant leader, but he was not organization, organizing marches and movements was not his thing. He, you know, he was a great orator. He had um, the belief in social justice and nonviolence, but Bayard Rustin was the one who could get something done. And that march in 1963 was organized in eight weeks. And it was the largest protest that had ever been held in the United States at up to that point, that 250,000 Americans went to Washington to demand racial justice. That was just unheard of in America. So Rustin also advocated for blacks and Jews to work together. And I know that there had been some Jewish involvement in the civil rights movement, but why don't more people know about this? I think that that coalition somewhat eroded over time. 
and I don't want to open a can of worms, but, but Russell was very committed to Jewish causes and he, you know, worked with Elie Wiesel and there's a picture of him with gold in my ear. Um, you know, he remained very loyal to, you know, Jewish colleagues at a time, even as after the black power movement and other things that sort of coalition between blacks and Jews eroded, he did not change his tune. You are Jewish and a member of the LGBTQ community. How important a figure has Rustin been for both communities, particularly these days when, you know, everything is so divided about, well, everything. Well, I have to say that I we had an evening where I showed the film at my queer synagogue, and it was really powerful for me to thread that needle. I mean, I... I, I can really only answer that personally, which is that having spent so much of my life first making the film and then talking about it, I feel like Rustin is kind of like my spiritual grandfather or something. And I am really just delighted that he's getting a lot more recognition now. What do you think about the protest and angst over the Israel-Gaza conflict? And what do you think he would have thought about it? Um, I'm going to take them in reverse order. I as tempting it is as it is to speak about, you know, sort of for someone, I think it's, I can't speak for Bayard Russell. It's not inappropriate. Um, I wish I could. I wish he were here because it would really help things. I mean, we're in a very anguished situation. Um, I am horrified by what's going on. I'm really saddened by attacks on, you know, both Muslim and Jewish young people in America. That shooting in Burlington just horrified me. Um, you mean I the feel, you mean the shooting of the Palestinian of yeah, the Palestinians? Yeah. Yes, it just horrified me. Um, but there have been anti-Semitic incidents on college campuses. Also, I I mean we're just and this is nothing compared to the number of people who died in Gaza. I don't want to make it all about the United States. So I personally am just incredibly saddened. You said a couple of minutes ago that you thought that things would be better if he were here. What do you mean? Byron Russell had this unique and profound ability to help people reach across differences. And he did this throughout his life. You know, he went to war zones. He went to places, you know, where there were dire refugee situations. And he was able to bring people together. That's filmmaker Nancy Cates speaking about the life of Bayard Rustin and what it might mean for current activists. Hear the extended version of the interview on the CBS News Roundup podcast. Coming up, the cost of those turtle doves and French hens. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. Welcome to the Kaleidoscope with Allison Keys segment, where every week we discuss issues including race. There's a new Netflix film out about Bayard Rustin, the openly gay black civil rights leader likely best known for putting together the 1963 March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. He passionately supported the black community and had a close connection with Jews as well. Filmmaker Nancy Cates didn't work on the new movie, but she thinks her 2003 documentary, Brother Outsider, The Life of Bayard Rustin, did much to bring his advocacy to a wider audience. Cates is Jewish and a member of the LGBTQ community and has been thinking about his legacy. We began by asking how she became interested in Rustin. I became interested in him in 1997 when I read a review of Jervis Anderson's book, Troubles I've Seen. Jervis Anderson was a staff reporter at the New Yorker. And, um, I had 
vaguely heard of Rustin, but I read this review in the New York Times and I thought, look at what this man did with his life. He started at the age of 15 as an activist and he continued doing activism until the day he died. You know, so for 60 years, he worked for social change. And I thought, what are the rest of us doing with our lives? Like we're a bunch of putzes by comparison. If you excuse my Yiddish, you know. <laughs> um, and I, I just thought we need to know about this guy. And I called up Bennett Singer, who had worked on Eyes on the Prize, the landmark TV series. And I said, what do you think about a film about Rustin? He said, I've been thinking about it t- since Eyes on the Prize stopped. And I'm, of course, thinking, why didn't he do something already? But <laughs> but that's how it got started. I just was really inspired by him. And I thought that very few people, very few Americans have that sustained commitment to social justice over so many decades. Let me jump in here, Nancy, and ask you a question, because I know people, well, some people know about his basically orchestrating the 1963 March on Washington, but he was involved in way more things. Talk to me about some of the other things that he dealt with. Well, when he was 15, as I was mentioning, he um, protested the local, um, there were restaurants and a movie theater in Westchester, Pennsylvania, where he grew up, which is 30 miles from Philadelphia that were segregated in the 1920s and 30s. And so he did this one person protest of this restaurant and he got arrested and then he got people to bail him out. Um, so he understood the power of working collectively at the age of 15. And then he went on, he went to various colleges. <laughs> he was thrown out of one college for protesting the dining halls because they had such terrible food. I mean, he was a, just a natural organizer and a natural activist and strategist. Um, he began to work with something called the Fellowship of Reconciliation in the 1940s, maybe the 30s, I guess the early 40s. He also worked with the labor organizer, A. Philip Randolph, who was famous for organizing the uh, Brotherhood of Sleeping Car Porters, which was this incredibly important Black union um, that really changed the face of American labor. Um, he and Rustin helped desegregate the United States military in 1948. Um, Randolph had the idea of marching on Washington in the 40s, which Rustin kind of revived in the 1960s because there wasn't a march in the 40s. So this visionary, openly gay black man in a in a community that wasn't and still doesn't necessarily, uh, shall we say, support the LGBTQ community. What would the modern civil rights movement have been without his influence? Well, Eleanor Holmes Norton, who's been in Congress for decades, you know, representing the District of Columbia, you know, says in our film that she doesn't think that it would have achieved what it had achieved without Byron Rustin. And so does Rachel Horowitz, who was his assistant for years. King was a brilliant leader, but he was not organization, organizing marches and movements was not his thing. He, you know, he was a great orator. He had, um, the belief in social justice and nonviolence, but Bayard Rustin was the one who could get something done. And that March in 1963 was organized in eight weeks. And it was the largest protest that had ever been held in the United States at up to that point, that 250,000 Americans went to Washington to demand racial justice. That was just unheard of in America. So Rustin also 
advocated for blacks and Jews to work together. And I know that there had been some Jewish involvement in the civil rights movement. But why don't more people know about this? I think that that coalition somewhat eroded over time. And I don't want to open a can of worms, but but Russell was very committed to Jewish causes. And he, you know, worked with Elie Wiesel. And there's a picture of him with Golda Meir. Um, you know, he remained very loyal to, you know, Jewish colleagues at a time, even as after the Black Power Movement and other things, that sort of coalition between Blacks and Jews eroded. He did not change his tune. You are Jewish and a member of the LGBTQ community. How important a figure has Rustin been for both communities, particularly these days when, you know, everything is so divided about, well, everything? Well, I have to say that I we had an evening where I showed the film at my queer synagogue, and it was really powerful for me to thread that needle. I mean, I... I, I can really only answer that personally, which is that having spent so much of my life first making the film and then talking about it, I feel like Rustin is kind of like my spiritual grandfather or something. And I am really just delighted that he's getting a lot more recognition now. I mean, it's, it's long overdue, but, it, you know, better late than never. Um, as Dr. King said, you know, the arc of justice bends, it, it, you know, it takes a long time. <laughs> I know that you did not work on the Netflix documentary that has come out this month, but I wonder, do you think that even would have been done without your previous work? Because this is a man that I think isn't taught that often in schools. And it's certainly not taught that he was a black gay man in the 1940s and 50s and 60s. Yeah. So the, the feature film uh, on Netflix is not a documentary. It's, it's a narrative film. And I, I don't think they would have even known about Rustin if we hadn't made our documentary, but I can't speak for them. Certainly we paved the way for people to be interested in Rustin. And there've been a lot of books. Um, he was given a posthumous medal of freedom in 2013. I think some of this stuff is because we, you know, put a big light on him in a way that had not been done before, but I, I can't. You know, that's just conjecture. Yeah, I get it. I'm curious. What do you think? Well, I'm going to ask you two questions. What do you think about the protest and angst over the Israel-Gaza conflict? And what do you think he would have thought about it? Um, I'm going to take them in reverse order. I, As tempting it is, as it is to speak about, you know, sort of for someone, I think it's, I can't speak for Bayard Rustin. It's not inappropriate. Um, I wish I could. I wish he were here because it would really help things. I mean, we're in a very anguished situation. I was actually supposed to be in Israel. I was supposed to leave a couple of days after the Hamas attack um, to go to Israel for the first time because I've never been there. And as a Jew, I felt like I should go. and see for myself. Um, I am horrified by what's going on. I'm really saddened by attacks on, you know, both Muslim and Jewish young people in America. That shooting in Burlington just horrified me. Um, you mean, the, feel, you mean the shooting of the Palestinian, of yeah, the Palestinians? Yeah. Yes. It just horrified me. Um, but there have been anti-Semitic incidents on college campuses also. I, I mean, we're just, and this is, Nothing compared to the number of people who've died in Gaza. I don't want to make it all about the United States. I just I think that you were asking more about what's going on here. So I personally am just incredibly saddened. And, you know, I'm a little taken aback when I see protest signs that say from the river to the sea, 
you know, but I, I'm very ambivalent about the state of Israel as a Jew because I don't think that it's always doing things that are ethical or fair or, you know, are in line. They're not always in line with Jewish values, but I was going there because I'm an American and I don't know enough about Israel. So I really have no business speaking about it in public. And I hope I've answered your question. You said a couple of minutes ago that you thought that things would be better if he were here. What do you mean? Byron Russell had this unique and profound ability to help people reach across differences. And he did this throughout his life. You know, he went to war zones. He went to places, you know, where there were dire refugee situations. And he was able to bring people together and I think it was because of his Quaker values. Now, you know, if he were still alive, he'd be, you know, over a hundred years old. So this is sort of a ridiculous thing to say, but you know, he had people, he was just a very warm human being who really saw the humanity in other people. So I can only imagine that he would have found some way to help bring these very, very difficult warring, you know, groups of people together or to create dialogue or at least to create dialogue in the United States. I mean, I maybe that's just um, wishful thinking. I don't know. But that's what I meant. I'm going to ask you one more. You said, I mean, he's a huge figure in the civil rights movement, right? And he was a follower of Gandhi. He, You said he had the ability to reach across, well, basically worlds and religion and everything and bring people together. What do you think activists today can learn from the way he handled things versus some of the unfortunate actual physical clashes that are going on now when people used to be able to disagree and have a conversation, you know? Well, you know, he was raised mostly by his grandmother, who was an African-American Quaker, which at times feels contradictory in that time period because unfortunately the Quakers were somewhat racist themselves. But he really, really, really believed that we were all part of one human family. And I think... Of all the stuff I know about him, that is the thing that I try to remember across difference, that we're all the same. And, you know, he said at one point, if we don't remember that, we will learn it the hard way. Well, I think we've been learning it the hard way over and over and over. And I I just, you know, it may sound Pollyannish, but I wish that we could just remember that, you know, that you and I may completely disagree, but we're we're both human and, and we should find some way to connect to each other and, you know, maybe be friends or, you know, have coffee together. It sounds so idealistic at times, but he really lived that. That's filmmaker Nancy Cates speaking about the life of Bayard Rustin and what it might mean for current activists. Coming up, the cost of those turtle doves and French hens. That's next on the CBS News Weekend Roundup. On the CBS News Weekend Roundup. I'm Allison Keyes. This may hurt chocolate lovers, but a CBS News investigation has found a disturbing truth about where it comes from. CBS's Deborah Pata has our exclusive report on the use of child labor in the harvesting of cocoa for the candy giant Mars. It's the company that makes products such as Snickers and M&M's. Laboring in the blistering heat. Here, as young as six, slicing the grass with lethal ease. Their machetes nearly as long as the smallest among them. These Ghanaian children are harvesting the cocoa that ends up in America's best-loved chocolates. Instead of going to school, they are learning that sharp blades cut deep 
and big corporations make promises they seldom keep. We traveled across Ghana's remote cocoa belt, visiting small subsistence farms that supply U.S. chocolate giant Mars, and found children working on every one of them. Mars did over $45 billion in annual sales last year, in large part from selling chocolates like M&Ms and Snickers. Its owners are the third wealthiest family in the U.S. The company vowed to have systems in place to eradicate child labor from its supply chain by 2025, even boasting about rescuing thousands of children who are listed as beneficiaries of what Mars calls their robust monitoring system to keep them off plantations and in schools. CBS News obtained copies of these lists from a whistleblower. We're going to try and find some of the children on these lists and see if the information checks out. Our first stop, 15-year-old Munira. And your name, I think, is on this list. Do you want to check for me? Is that you? Here she is, toiling away on her family farm, her life since she was five years old. School's a luxury she's hardly ever been. I feel sad. I want to be a like medical doctor, but they don't, they don't have money to support me. The family says it harvested only one bag of decent quality cocoa the entire year. A 140-pound sack fetches around $115. Last year, field supervisors contracted by Mars visited Munira. And this is all they gave you? Handing out a backpack and school books with the slogan, I am a child, I play, I go to school. In the nearly 18 months since that visit, nobody has been back to check that she is in school. This cocoa field supervisor for the past 13 years spoke out on condition we hide his identity. Personally, I've made lists before. I've made a place before. And I can say on authority that almost every data, almost every data is cooked. Or incorrect. Or in, it's not correct. Nobody has come back to check as to whether it's true or not. CBS News spoke to nearly a dozen children on that list used by Mars. None of them were in school, nor had they been regularly monitored to ensure they attended classes. No one came here ever? And in some cases, the name on the list was an outright fabrication. We've come to visit another household where a child is listed by Mars as no longer working on cocoa farms. She was supposed to be this man's daughter. The only problem, she doesn't even exist. When children do go to school, instead of pencils, they carry machetes. Put your hands up if you work on the cocoa farms. Less than a third of the 300 students registered here actually attend classes, and they all told us they harvest cocoa either before or after school. Is all the cocoa here? CBS News visited a warehouse that supplies cocoa giant Mars. So you can 100% guarantee that all the cocoa here has no child labor in it? in Ghana, child labor is an offense. That's not my question. Can you guarantee that all the cocoa here is free of child labor. 
that one. U.S. human rights lawyer Terry Collingsworth has filed a proposed class action lawsuit for consumer fraud against American chocolate manufacturers Mars, Cargill and Mondelez. They're telling the public that we're re- rehabilitating this kid and then they're cynically coming here and just checking a box and they, the kid is back working the next day. That's fine. That's fine. He has collected statements from Ghanaian children working for Mars suppliers. Okay. Thank you for being very brave. Like these little boys doing the back-breaking work of adult men. Tiny hands struggling with the dangerous work of hacking open cocoa pods, the long blade narrowly missing this five-year-old's fingers. Mars is one of the biggest privately owned companies in the world, raking in billions every year in large part from chocolate. Billions made on the backs of these young children. We have repeatedly asked Mars for an interview. They declined every request. A security guard asked us to leave their headquarters when we went there, and we even went to the CEO's home to try and get answers. Mars did send us a statement where they condemned the use of child labor. Mars also denies pressuring any field workers to fabricate data and call their statement that they will be child labor free by 2025 a goal. And not a promise. Deborah Patter, CBS News, Washington. You all know the song, The Twelve Days of Christmas, but how much would all of that stuff cost this year? On the first day of Christmas, my true love said to me. PNC's Christmas Price Index shows that partridge in a pear tree will set you back more than $319 this season. That's a jump of almost 14%. The price of two turtle doves up 25% to 750 bucks. The four calling birds, five gold rings, seven swans a-swimming, and eight maids a-milking are all about the same as last year. Overall, your true love would have to spend $46,729.86 to show you they care. That's an increase of 2.7% from 2022. Deborah Rodriguez, CBS News. And the partridge in a pear tree. And there are other questions. Who's going to feed all those birds? That's it for the Weekend Roundup. Thanks for listening. We want to get your feedback. Send us your thoughts and story ideas to Weekend Roundup at cbsnews.com. As always, you can find the program online on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Sarah Fishman is the technical supervisor, and Alan Peng provides production assistance. Tara Lipinski is the executive producer. Have a great week. I'm Allison Keyes, CBS News. If you like CBS News Roundup, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. 
You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. Catch every episode of 60 Minutes, America's most-watched news magazine show, as a podcast. Hear in-depth investigations across politics, news, and entertainment on your schedule. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.